Welcome to What's the Word Downtown, a weekly podcast dedicated to mining the depths of the word, a word that's sharp and active in downtown Tyler, Texas. Join Eric, Matt, and Mike as we get the word out at Bethel. Hey, welcome to What's the Word Downtown. I'm Matt McGill. This is Pastor Eric Barton. We're here to discuss the 29th chapter of Genesis. Indeed. Where you discussed that for nearly 50 minutes. <laughs> we were told yesterday. I got but it a was roll. a delicious 50 minutes. Mm. If you were in the room, you know that you worked through some, has to be one of the more minefield when you talk about yeah. like I was thinking about this just sort of your this you you have to you want to let the word preach itself yep. you've always said that and yet you have cultural sensitivities mm-hmm. that are you're just you're just you're in a minefield of of feelings where you could really hurt people with the word not that the word would hurt people but as a pastor what's that like i mean was that kind of grueling for you to talk through that i mean it is it's a text that's 3,800 years old. Hmm. Well, Moses writes it about 3,500 years ago, mm-hmm. but we have a tendency to read it and place ourselves in the center of the narrative mm-hmm. to our peril because there's some really uh, odd things that are happening culturally. I mean, the things that are happening in this story in Genesis 29 predate the law of Moses. Yeah, And so forget about our culture not being portable to this time, but even the culture of the nation of Israel is really not even able to be ported to this narrative. And so it's sort of bad example. It's the Wild West, except it's the Wild East back then. There's 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 no law. There's a man named Abram who's been called out of Mesopotamia. There's his son Isaac. Now there's this guy Jacob. And their Yahwism, their understanding of God is, of course, not fully orbed. And so they're just surviving according to the custom of the day, which in antiquity was pretty much just survive. And it's more of the same with just this sort of familial chaos. Right. You know, I was thinking as you, as you started to talk about the distinctions between Leah and Rachel, mm-hmm. I couldn't help but think of Cain and Abel. Right. I mean, it's a it's a it's an echo of the old problem, the old old problem. That's right. That is to say one sibling finds favor mm-hmm. in the sight of the Lord. In in they came into reality with an advantage Mm -hmm. and one sibling comes into reality without an advantage somehow not finding so i don't really understand cain and abel's not well if you could talk about not finding favor or uh his offering like cain's offering uh was not accepted for some reason, it was rejected. And Abel's offering, for some reason, which we don't get a lot of detail about, was accepted. And I think that, and, and don't let me just get into what I think, but this is really, <laughs> I, you know, it, most of us are a sibling or have siblings, which mm-hmm. makes us a sibling. And we understand something like, why did my brother get the looks? Why did my brother get the strength? Yeah. Why did my brother get the accounting prowess? Whatever it is that, that, that God seems to have favored one, over the other. And that's a very sensitive place because when you're not favored, you feel that. You do, for sure. And especially as we look to our parents for fulfillment, for identity, you see it very early on. The first pang of the fall is a sibling rivalry. I mean, this is where death begins to manifest is in that kernel of 
the household where there's enmity between brothers, Cain and Abel. It doesn't take long. You get into Genesis 6 and you start realizing, okay, net of the flood, Noah and his three sons and all of their spouses, they're on, but of the three, Shem, Hem, and Japheth, it's Shem that's going to be the favored one. Mm-hmm. What's up with that? We don't know. But the household ends up being the place where a lot of enmity and strife gets fueled, unfortunately, that creates all sorts of fractions and fallenness. You get further in the narrative and you start seeing, that, hey, it's not just Cain and Abel. It's not Shem, Hem, and Japheth only. Now you got Jacob and Esau. And there's this rivalry. And then you find out way back up in Mesopotamia, there's this thing with Leah and Rachel. And so there is... God wants us to understand something about sibling rivalry. There's a paradigm in which the father has the opportunity in the midst of distinctive differences in siblings to still bless. Now, to fast forward all the way through, you get into the New Testament, and that's when you start realizing, but wait, Jesus tells this story in Luke 15 of what we call the prodigal son. As Tim Keller said, it's really the prodigal God. The, the younger brother who goes and does all these things, but it's the big brother who's called into question. Mm-hmm. And what Luke is telling us, what Jesus is telling us through Luke, is that this big brother will lay down for the little brother. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 2, and we see that this big brother is proud of us. Mm-hmm. And he sings songs mm-hmm. over us in the assembly. So this is the ultimate fulfillment of this sibling. And so then we're called in Hebrews 12, the assembly of the firstborn we're the, we're the big brothers What's now. What's the Tencent word for the firstborn primacy? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Oh, gosh, we never it's have that one. happen. I looked know. over at Mark. Mark just hung his head in such yes, shame. Let we're going to have to edit that no out. No way. That's part of the fabric. <laughs> but but here, uh, uh, player's going to play, and I'm going to say that to you to speak to Laban. Mm-hmm. Because Laban here might know, might understand something about Cain and Abel. Protophilial. That's it. Protophilial. Sorry. That's it. See? Sorry, I was listening, by the way. So Laban understands uh, that one of his daughters is going to be a problem for him. Right. And, and so he learns, or so he plays. He plays the system, plays the game, and plays does, the player. But he's doing it for his own sake. But he's also the responsible father that, hey, listen, she's got no other prospects for whatever reason. And yet... He's responsible to get her into a family somehow. And he finds a not-so-willing accomplice, but someone who's made his own bed and himself now got to sleep in it, in Jacob. So Laban, yeah, he's a sneak and he's a player, and we're going to find out later on he's got more issues. But you know what? He takes care of his daughter. He takes care of his daughter. And uh, Jacob, I think one of the things that I've always thought is, uh, you know, by taking care of his daughter, he dealt a blow to Jacob. He did. Looked like a blow. I don't know that it was really a blow. It was certainly a blow to Jacob's perception. So again, the, yeah. the issue is Jacob goes to Mesopotamia, sees Rachel, falls in love immediately with her falls image. In, with her image, right? That was Not a with her. beautiful salient point. His idea of her right. was what he idolized. Yeah, and for apparently for 450 miles, he's dreaming about how God's going to make good on this deal. And the first thing he sees, it's like the first morsel of food is a steak buffet. Yeah. He just says, it's got to be, that's that, it. it. That's it. And then he gives himself completely to it. And when that is taken from him, he's incensed. Is that kind of like what Esau did by going for the soup 
as soon as it came. I mean, I'm so that's that's exactly right. I didn't get it, uh, <laughs> even though I was 50 minutes long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still Come on, didn't get into this detail. Jacob plays on Esau's basest desire of appetite. Mm-hmm. The teleonic punishment, you might say the, not karma, but the reap what you sow mm-hmm. thing is that Laban plays on Jacob's basest appetite. It's the same idea. It's the mm-hmm. deceiver gets deceived. And so absolutely, when we're driven by our passions, our lusts, our intense desires, our base appetites, we are putting our head in a bear trap and expecting not to get <laughs> our faces pierced. That's that's always a biblical model of do not lead with your base desires. They are against you. This is Paul's point in Galatians 5. The desires of our flesh are trying to do us harm. But it's hard to know that in the moment. And so what we're getting from these narratives in Jacob is, hey, listen, look, this is a cautionary tale. Don't let your basest desires determine your day. Okay, so I haven't had a base desire in a very long time. Of course, you're a pastor. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding. But I will say that... uh, you know, these days, it seems like people think about marriage as transactional need fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And so long back, this was a way for a man to overcome his base self, is to wed himself to another yeah. and begin to uh, glean from her the wisdom as the way he should go, in a sense, or, mm-hmm. or that, that God would somehow bridle a man through the process of marriage. But here, he's he's his led by his appetite gets in a sense swindled into being wed to someone he has no love for. Right. Which is to be delicate here, an inevitability for all of us. Yeah, that's not so delicate, but it's so true. It's an inevitability. Of course. We never marry the right person, Stanley Hauerwas said. Right. Because the person that you married is no longer the person to whom you are married. And neither are you the person who married the same person. And so there has to be a persistent death to self. Death to self of this doesn't feel like I want it to feel, but that's not what this is about. It's not about my base desires getting checked off a list. Hey, this is where in marriage a particularly a male, moves from being a consumer to being the principal provider of life, abundance, prosperity, blessing for the sake of everybody else. A man moves into marriage thinking, this is where I'm going to get all that I want. I'm going to be fulfilled, but pretty quickly has to realize this is no longer about me or even for me. This is where I become a father and become a provider. Well, and and I couldn't have... I couldn't have possibly really counted the cost. No. No. I'm going to need a ton of <laughs> grace to forgive my former self for consigning my present self That's right. to a future I couldn't have imagined. Look at the cross. And you look yeah. at the cross. And say, all of my stupidity, ignorance, foolishness, arrogance, and just general cluelessness is nailed to the cross. Mm-hmm. And... Then you get the real humbling exercise of asking your wife or asking your spouse to participate in nailing all of that error of your past to the cross. And she has to accept that. And you have to accept that for her as well. And so you both then lock arms as you gaze at the cross. And then you realize this is the power between us, not affection, not looks, 
not even sheer grit, determination, and will. It's we both lock arms and look at the cross. Which I think this narrative yes. is telling us, hey, in the long scheme of things, Rachel does some pretty wonky weird things later on. It's Leah. Turns it's out to be the wrong horse that he was after all along. Correct. And Leah turns out to be the one that God chose. Yeah. She's the one through whom the priestly line comes. So and I, the king line. This this whole story is uh, fascinating to me. And I, when you began to tease out the sense of the Rachel that and the Leah that you see in your spouse. Mm, man. I initially thought that this story was something like, because we don't have polygamy, praise God. <laughs> uh, right, at least in, in Texas. That's part of it. <laughs> that's a different <laughs> denomination entirely. <laughs> but because we don't have polygamy, uh, I'm, I want to look at this text and I want to, perhaps maybe this is too much of a, um, of a jump, but I wanted to see this like, uh, every marriage needs a second marriage. My first, I, I, I got married and then I lifted the veil and holy smokes, <laughs> though my wife is beautiful, yeah. marriage is a lot harder. Yeah. I, in fact, I kind of want to close that veil and push <laughs> that away. That's not you, Megan, but I mean the, the construct of marriage itself because it demands so much death of me, Does. right? So that with the gospel, I raise the veil again and, and behold my wife anew afresh, even as she is, is, is given the capacity to do the same with me. So tell me, you, you made it rather a distinction from uh, uh, first marriage, second marriage to say, hey, you, have, you are a new creation in Christ and you are married to a new creation in Christ and both of you are tied to old dead men mm -hmm. until the, the final removal of sin, which is death, right? Absolutely. And so given that, how will you allow God, will you allow God to train your eyes or give you eyes to see beyond your sight? You know what I mean? To impute, to see in and, and to, to participate in God as he calls things that are not as though they were. Mm -hmm. This sort of ginning up new life. Grace, uh, grace creates what the law demands. Mm. Uh, Which I think is why we have that marvelous passage that we've already discussed sure. a long time ago in Ephesians 5 where Paul gives us the household code. This is what, this is what the kingdom looks like mm -hmm. in your little outpost of the kingdom, mm -hmm. husbands and wives. And then he says, I'm talking about a mystery here, you guys. It's you think on. I'm talking about marriage, and I am, but only illustratively because it points us to the church in Christ's love, the bridegroom's love for the bride, and that becomes our model, which is an abstraction and an ethereal thing where we go, okay, but Jesus is the God-man, and then the church is a whole bunch of people, and yeah, I, I, that kind of breaks down. But then you realize there's a very specific thing of, hey, Christ died for the unlovely. Christ died for the disrespecting. Now that's marriage. And we, in a consumeristic culture, say, no, what's in it for me? What was in it for Jesus was a redeemed people. Yeah. And so part of what's in it for me is dying to self. It doesn't mean ceasing existence. It means separating from my flesh, that, that realm in which I rule and I am sovereign. No, a separation from that for the sake of another because I get to be an instrument in her redemption in one sense. And what is in it for me? 
my redeemed bride, that God's doing a work in, I get to participate in that. And in, in reverse, her reward is to see in me the redemption that God is doing. But if we enter into our marriage like Jacob does for Rachel, seven years seems like a few days. And there's been pop songs and bad movies written to use it. What a romance. What a, what a whirlwind love they had. No. I even read a commenter like, oh, every time he saw Rachel put her hair behind her ear, it just drove him crazy. That's a complete eisegetical reading into the text, a modern notion of romance. No, Jacob yeah, is base. Right. Yeah. He's, he's, this is not okay. And so that point when Jacob goes into labor, give me my wife because yeah. I want to go in. I mean, that's, wow. a, that's an appalling statement. Uh, but yet, you're coming out of some sort of real, real sense of entitlement. Absolutely. And this is going to be it. This is the this is the, the rubbing of the genie's lamp. It's going to come out, and I'm, this is going to be the answer. I will have hit the lottery and all those kinds of things. And it's, I'm afraid, nothing new is under the sun. 3,800 years later, this is still how people walk into a marriage, and they decide, hey, it's not meeting all of my needs. Therefore, the relationship is now disposable. I'll try again. And I'll a lot of again. that is because of the romantic, as, as, as the death of God in, 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 modern, in modernity, there's there, the religious impulse turned to romantic love. Right. My, my spouse can save me. Right. When my spouse doesn't end up saving me, there's this new pessimism that comes in about marriage as an ideal. And, 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 and I love it. I love it because uh, it is revealing uh, that marriage itself is a Christian concept, a Christian construct, sure. uh, and and in Him all hold, things hold together. Right. So, right, right, um, right. So here we are. At is there is there much? What else is, did we get into? We, oh yes. The, well, we get yeah. chapter twenty nine. Is this really chapter twenty nine and thirty are sort of a, a two volume chapter set? You've got this crazy scene where Jacob approaches, falls in love with the image of Rachel, works for seven years, which is a three x the bride price, willing to pay it because he's just so passionate to fulfill his desires. Mm -hmm. Turns out it's Leah. He's horrified. The deceiver's been deceived. Goes to Laban. Laban says, you know what? You can have Rachel too when you work another seven years. And so he gets Rachel, has to work another seven years. But during that second seven-year period, you've got this crazy deal where Jacob has now, because of Rachel and Leah's concubines or their hand servants, he has concubines. Mm -hmm. And so he's having children with this all four of them. This is the birth of the 12 tribes of this Israel. This is the 12 tribes. And you wouldn't make this stuff up. Right. I mean, you would make up a whole way different sort this of is a the dirty dozen. Tale. If there this ever is was, the dirty dozen, <laughs> four different mothers, brothers by different mothers. Here they go. And, Let's see how that goes. Oh then. gosh, and it gets crazy quickly. And Moses pulls no punch to tell the people of Israel, "This is where you come from." But God is faithful. He's fulfilling His promise, not just in spite of, but through the jacked upness of all of your forefathers. And then it starts to just develop more and more and more iterations. But you see in Leah, I think kind of the main character of the story, it's not really because God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the principle of this chapter ends up being Leah, who says, I've had a son. Now my husband will see me. I have another son. Now he'll hear me. I'll have another son. Now he'll accept me. And there's this grappling to, to have a life that has some weight and meaning and worth. Well, and to be, and to be cherished and accepted. Exactly. 
Exactly. And finally, but she's looking one. for it. She's looking for it earth in an earthbound. Totally. Way, right? On the one hand, she was always looking for it. She was never going to have happiness in marriage, but Laban, her father, by hook and by crook, gets her a husband. And you know what? That doesn't solve it. doesn't satisfy it because she's married, but she's hated. Mm-hmm. So she's got a household now, but there's no joy there. And so she thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll throw babies at this deal. Never a good idea. Mm-hmm. And so she starts having babies. And over time, you find out she gives him seven children, one of which is a girl, Dinah. And then there's some crazy things that happen with her later on in Genesis, the sister. But later on, the fourth child is Judah, and she says, now she turns to Yahweh. And it's this incredibly shocking thing for us. In the English, we, we don't see it. It's not just God. She calls, this Mesopotamian girl calls the covenant-keeping name of God, I will praise him. And it's at that moment you kind of start to see the relationship with Jacob and Leah begin to change. And Rachel does some crazy things later on. Rachel's the pretty one. Mm. But you kind of start to find out that Leah has the depth. Mm. She's actually turned to God. And it's only later when Rachel finally turns to God that God remembers her, opens her womb, and she has a son. Yeah. Wow. So there's a lot going on there. Moses trying to remind them, listen, God is faithful. When we follow our base desires, and we do, there is grace. God is going to get done what God is going to get done. But we can minimize so much pain and chastisement and consequence and discipline by deciding in advance. We're going to trust him. He's here. He's here. He's He's right in the middle of our marriage. He's right in the middle of the relationship between us and our children, mother, daughter, mother, son. I mean, it's... Genesis is a virtual tour of sin splattering. Right. Yes. And God's faithfulness. Right. And I'm going to tell you what, man, it's already yielding fruit for us personal, us as a family. Wow. We've had some talks about uh, older sister, younger sister, uh, what, how we each have strengths, but they're different and how we both have weaknesses, but they're different Mm -hmm. and how easy it is to learn how to get the response you want by by putting a finger on the weakness oh, wow. and calling it out, but how that actually makes sisters, it, crea- it creates and exacerbates an, a level of enmity right. that already exists. There's a, there's a level of enmity between all people unless in, in the gospel is present, unless the grace well, of God. It. I mean, Our other, world is perfectly optimized to amplify power differentials. That's right. And yet the gospel comes in and says, hey, look at the cross. Mm-hmm. What power differential? Look, the sovereign God of the cosmos hangs naked, beaten, shamed on a cross. What power differential? The glory we, of God is not in, not in power exerted, but power given up. Right, right. And so as our Savior... But also as our moral exemplar, we might say, mm-hmm. like when we encounter areas in which our base desires want us to exert influence or power differential manipulation to say, no, 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 because of the gospel, the great story of what God's done in Christ, I don't have to grasp. And so what it allows us to do is to not take everything so personally yeah. as if everything is aimed at my little idol factory. It allows us to to step back and go, whoa, where'd that come from? That actually wasn't about me. 
hey, okay, that's just somebody else is struggling. You know what? I get to be the person who is drenched in the gospel, and I get to be a source of, of peace and joy and not take everything so personally. See also marriages. Paul David Tripp always says that uh, when you take things personally, it's right then that you've missed the opportunity for ministry. It's great. It's so great. So that when you identify, wait, I'm hurt. I should. I need to be right here. You're 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 missing the fact that there's probably someone who is in need of refreshment. Yeah. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done so what they good. did. So good. Okay, guys, let's keep let's hold it together, huh? <laughs> we'll or let's remember best. that we're held together. That's it. That's even better. Hey, yeah, come on. The ladder's present. The ladder's everywhere present. we go. And there he stands at the bottom of the ladder. We don't have to ascend. Mm -hmm. He's already come down. Sweet Good Jesus. Stuff. Amen. Okay, see y'all soon. God bless.